is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 186, covering the week of September 9th through September 13th, 2019. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Abbeville Institute. Like our Facebook page at Abbeville Institute. And of course, subscribe to our YouTube page at Abbeville Institute. If you don't want to search for all those social media accounts, just go to our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. At the top of the page, you'll see all our social media buttons. While you're there, give us an email address and we'll give you a free ebook. And you'll get our daily dose of Dixie Monday through Friday and our weekly email on Saturday or Sunday, which includes a link to this podcast. You can support the Abbeville Institute while you're there by clicking on the support tab at the top of the page. You'll see various uh, donor options. It'll say donor options. And then, of course, you can donate monthly, annually, or give us a one-time contribution. That is tax-deductible to the full extent of the law. You can also support the Abbeville Institute by clicking on that shop uh, tab under the, under, the, under the donate tab or support tab. Click on shop. It'll take you out and get all of our Abbeville Institute apparel. It's embroidered stuff, nice stuff. It's a great way to help advertise the Institute. And also, uh, we get a few pennies from those uh, proceeds, so you can do that. Also, click on that Amazon button at the top of the page. While you shop at Amazon, you contribute to the Institute. So if you're going to buy something from there anyways, well, make us your preferred 501 nonprofit group, and we get a little change from those sales. So it's a great way to support while you do nothing. Also, please share our material around on social media. If you like this podcast, share it around. Rate it on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. It's a great way to let people know you like what we're doing, and it's a great way to help us explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition. So there's lots of ways to support what we do, support our conferences, support the podcast, support the website, um, and we do appreciate everything that you contribute. All right. Oh, and don't forget to get our free mobile app. If you like this, you want the Abbeville Institute on the go, I forgot to mention this, get that mobile app um, and... Uh, it's, it's, again, free of charge. Just go look at your uh, app store, whether it's uh, in, in Apple or on uh, your uh, Google Play, wherever you get your apps, uh, and you can download the Abbeville Institute app. Again, free of charge. Everything we do on the web is free of charge. So your donations help keep that possible. All right, let's talk about material for the week. One of the biggest, uh, we had two articles on this one video that PragerU produced. And we are, I'll, I'll just say, one of the things you do when you are helping us with your contribution, you're going to see these hopefully in the next couple of months, are videos to combat the PragerU nonsense on the war and reconstruction. So we're creating our own series of videos like PragerU videos, but we will need some financial support to do some of that. But uh, until we, we'll have a couple come out, you can see what we're doing, and I hope it'll excite people and get you fired up about that project and would want to make a financial contribution for it. But we've got this PragerU video by Alan Gelzo on Reconstruction. And Professor Gelzo is probably the biggest Lincolnite in America. I mean, I, there might be more. I, I don't know. But look, Gelzo, as, after we, we ran this piece on Thursday, I had people emailing Gelzo stories. Uh, apparently, at one point... He compared Lincoln to Jesus, right, to, to another, um, to uh, someone he was talking to. I mean, this guy loves Abraham Lincoln, and he spends so much time lighting candles and genuflecting to Abraham Lincoln, he really doesn't understand what he's talking about. Now, he tells great stories. Uh, if you listen to his speeches, they're well put together. Uh, his stories are, are fairly good, but 
he gets everything wrong about interpretation. And, and as I've said, either it's on this podcast or on my own podcast, The Brian McClanahan Show, I've talked about history. What we consider to be, quote-unquote, fact in history is most times interpretation. Um, and when you look at Lincoln, there's no way you can walk away from that period of time, the 1860s and 70s, and the Reconstruction period, the war, and of course the Republican Party, with the impression that they're anything but a minority party full of tricks and uh, tyranny. I mean, that's it. It's the only thing you can think of when you look at the Republican Party. And Gelzo, of course, falls into the habit of calling Southerners traitors because, of course, Abraham Lincoln, essentially, uh, in his mind, or the Republicans called Southerners traitors. And so if the Republicans called Southerners traitors, well, then it has to be true. I'm not going to get it because I, I've spent a whole uh, podcast of my own talking about Alan Gelzo and his stupidity on Reconstruction. But one thing I do want to focus on is something he said in a speech that he gave at Washington and Lee University. Now, first of all, Don Livingston debated Alan Gelzo in 2010 or 2011, 2011 at the University of Virginia, November of 2011. And he, uh, Livingston was invited and Gelzo was invited to, for a debate on nullification. And Gelzo, of course, makes his points. This is sponsored by ISI, the Intercollegiate Studies Institute. Gelzo makes his uh, case. Actually, Livingston went first. Gelzo went second. And at the end of the debate, Gelzo, essentially, there was a student that stood up and said, well, look, uh, wait a second here. I mean, what you're saying, if this is what you're saying, uh, then the entire founding generation are, are traitors. If what you're saying is true, then they're all traitors. And Gelzo, uh, or something to that effect, um, and uh, that the general government, if a general government is tyrannical, well, then shouldn't there be a check? I mean, the founding generation believed this. And Gelzo essentially called her a traitor. He said, you're a traitor. Um, and of course, this was very unpopular with the audience. And not just that. I believe there was a, a, a poll taken at the end, or and Livingston won the debate. And I bring this up because Gelza was making a speech at Washington and Lee. And while he was making this speech, after he was done, of course, the, the speech was about Lee the traitor, <laughs> that uh, Lee was a traitor. Uh, at Washington Lee University. I mean, hilarious. You can't make up the the just absolute uh, cluelessness from Gelzo. But not just that. At the end of the talk, somebody has the guts to stand up and say, well, look, I, why would Lee be a traitor if secession actually happened? He's no longer a citizen of the United States, so therefore he can't be a traitor to the United States. I mean, you could say that he's a foreign combatant, an enemy, but not a traitor. And Gelzo response, and this is exactly how I, before I even listened to his response, I knew what he would say, but I'm going to make one point about this. Gelzo then says, well, uh, first of all, secession is not constitutionally or legally possible, so it never happened, and Lincoln essentially said as much. He never recognized, nobody ever recognized the Confederacy, so it wasn't real, right? So here's a man that doesn't believe in self-determination. The Confederacy was both de facto and de jure, they had their own legal document. This is the, under the. If we're looking at legitimacy as the consent of the governed, then certainly, the Confederate government was the legitimate government in the South um, for those four years. I mean, there's there's no question about this. It was de jure and de facto a legal government. 
Uh, and then he says, uh, he goes into why he doesn't believe secession was constitutional, and he tells the guy, you would lose this argument. Well, I'm here to tell you that Professor Gelzo, he might lose the argument, but um, I would love, I would love, I would chomp at the bit to have a debate with Professor Gelzo on the constitutionality of secession, because I would ask Professor Gelzo one question, one simple question, and it would destroy his entire argument. And this is something that uh, no one, see, Gelzo doesn't understand originalism, which is half the problem. But I would just ask him, in the, where in the Constitution does it say that the states cannot secede from the Union? It's a very simple question. Now, a lot of, quote-unquote, constitutional conservatives get hung up on this question because they would say, well, we're, we're, the Constitution has to say, if it's not said in the Constitution, you can't do it. Well, this is true for the general government, but not for the state governments. And so, because it does not say states cannot leave, they can leave. There's no prohibition on secession in the Constitution for the states, which means that, therefore, they have the right to secede constitutionally. Now, we can talk about the right of revolution, we can talk about the right of self-determination, all of that. But I would love to debate Professor Gelzo and ask him that one simple question, because it's the question that destroys his entire argument. Um, and I could go through a litany of examples on how the founding generation believed this was the case when it came to, quote-unquote, originalism, and how, of course, the founding generation thought secession was entirely possible and legal. So, and of course, they wrote the document. Now, I know that Abraham Lincoln doesn't say that, and, of course, as we're genuflecting uh, and kneeling in honor of Lincoln, spending time at his, uh, at his temple there in Washington, D.C., uh, we're losing sight of this. But the fact is that Gelzo does not really know what he's talking about. And it's hilarious when you hear such a pompous idiot stand up there and say, you would lose, when anyone with half a brain would thrash him in a debate on this subject, as Dr. Livingston already has. So um, this, is, this is the problem with Alan Gelzo. Uh, and there's, a, there's an image, when I, when I produced this, my own podcast on this, and I sent out an email for it, there's the image that Gettysburg College uses for his professor page is Gelzo standing there with his arms crossed and a smug look on his face. Now, anyone who studies body language knows what that means. You're not going to persuade me of anything. I think I know more than you, and you're an idiot. And that's his body language. Arms crossed, smug look, like, look how smart I am. Um, well, I'll, I'll just be frank. You're not that smart on this issue. So... Gelzo's problematic because he runs around. All the quote-unquote conservative groups pick him up to do talks on the war. They shouldn't. Uh, of course, just the fact that PragerU, which has also produced a horrible video on the war from a professor at the United States Military Academy, the fact that they would run is, is nonsense. I mean, look, they might as well just get Eric Foner to do it. And this is what I said in my own podcast. And, of course, Phil Lee followed up on Friday getting into some issues that I didn't talk about in the podcast, a little more detail on economics. Uh, Gelzo firmly believed that the only way to redeem the South was to make it like the North. I mean, this is what he essentially says. And as Lee points out in his piece on Friday, well, I mean, look, the reason the South was what it was is because of Reconstruction. And one thing that he's brought up in his, in his talk that he gave at the uh, Abbeville Institute Summer School on Reconstruction and the New South 
uh, was that the South was being punished by the North. It was being the development, the industrial development of the South, which is what Gelzo thinks should happen, was actually happening. But the North was preventing it from happening uh, in a way that would be beneficial to the South. So, for example, the Southern steel industry out of Alabama was essentially retarded by the North. Uh, they would not allow it to blossom because that would be extreme competition for the North. And it wasn't until the middle of the 20th century that the South was allowed to compete on equal terms with the North. Um, so there were things like this going on in the South when it comes to industrial development. I mean, what do you expect? Uh, the North is trying to keep the South. They know full well the South is, a, is, a, is an economic colony of the North. They know they can get cheap labor there, uh, and which is, I mean, look, anyone, again, recognize this in the New South period. That's what the South became, an economic colony. They saw it that way. It was a way to keep Southern blacks in, the, in a place. They didn't want them expanding anywhere else, and that became problematic by the time you get to the late 19th century as Southern blacks begin to move into Northern cities, and then you start seeing race riots. Why? Because Northerners didn't want them there. So this is, an, this is a way to bottle up a minority population, uh, Northerners viewed it that way, and to keep the South subjugated, to make it a colony. This was the point of Reconstruction. And, of course, if you keep former slaves in the South and you keep them voting Republican, well, you win elections. Now, the Republicans figured out they, can't, they don't do very well with this. Uh, they were losing. Now, they, they won the presidency in 1896. The only reason they won the presidency in 1896 uh, after Grover Cleveland was because of the fact that uh, McKinley appealed to Southerners to vote for him. And you had William Jennings Bryan. Of course, Bryan did win most of the Southern states, but you had enough Southerners uh, that would maybe conservatives that would peel away. Bryan was too far left uh, that would peel away and enough conservative Northerners to vote Republican, not Democrat. This is the only reason that McKinley won. And then, of course, you get TR and the progressives, and uh, then you have to move into the progressive movement. But we saw, I mean, we've seen that... Um, Democrats controlled the Congress for most of American history in the 20th century. And that was due in large part to the South. So the Republican Party has always been a minority party. It's always been a minority party. Um, and it's full of, as I said, trickery and tyranny. And those are the things that mark the Republican Party. So um, it's important to point this out. It's important to point out the problems of Reconstruction. I mean, it used to be called a tragic era, not to Gelzo. He calls it a, a glorious time. Reconstruction is glorious. Glorious. Uh, you can't even make this up. Uh, again, Eric Foner would be better off writing the history than, uh, and they just might as well pull Eric Foner to make a PragerU video. Just go ahead. Just get Eric Foner. And be, oh, no, 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 we can't do that. Well, I mean, this is what you've done by hiring Gelzo to do it. All right, so that's enough of Gelzo. Um, the guy is really problematic. But we had three other pieces this week, and I think one uh, was very interesting. It was the book review, actually, on the book To Die in Chicago by George uh, Levy. Um, this is an unknown part of the war for, for most people. Now, of course, if you've studied the war enough, you know about Northern Prisoner of War camps. Um, now, there are people like um, Mark Neely try to minimize how bad these things were. Uh, that they weren't really that bad. I mean, that the that the arrest of northern civilians is overblown. This, this really didn't happen that much. Uh, there was no tyranny in the north. There, this wasn't going on. But there weren't any political prisoners. And if they were there, they were just arrested for a short amount of time, put in prison for a short amount of time, and it really wasn't that bad. I mean, this is essentially the position. Uh, it really wasn't that bad. 
Uh, and, you know, and then you've had uh, studies of northern prisoner of war camps. Oh, the, the, the attacks on these are just, it's just propaganda. This really wasn't that bad. Well, I know, for example, in Fort Delaware, uh, the, uh, the evidence is clearly there that it was that bad. I mean, Fort Delaware on Pea Patch Island near Wilmington, uh, it's in a state that I called home for several years of my life. And, of course, I wrote my dissertation on James Byard, the senator from Delaware during the war, who opposed Lincoln. But the, uh, the, the conditions at Pea Patch Island were awful. I mean, men were forced to drink mosquito larvae water. People were dying all the time. Dead bodies were stacked outside. This is, this is documented. People were starving. Willful mistreatment of prisoners at Camp Delaware, uh, at Fort Delaware. Whereas when you have Andersonville, for example, there was no willful mistreatment there. I mean, these, these prisoners had the same rations that Confederate soldiers who were protecting them, guarding the prison camp had. And, of course, the parole situation was, I mean, the Union refused to, uh, refused to exchange. So, I mean, this was awful. I mean, these men were essentially left to rot there because the Union government wouldn't exchange. And you look at some of the other prison camps. There was one near uh, Cahaba in Alabama. And, of course, it's famous because a lot of the men that were paroled from that prison at the end of the war died on a paddle boat as they were going up the Mississippi. The thing blew up. Um, so you had a horrible uh, steamboat, paddleboat accident on the Mississippi River from, the, from those uh, Union prisoners of war. Uh, but they were, the, the commander of that prison camp tried to humanely treat these prisoners. He did everything he could to ensure that they were essentially as well taken care of as, as, they, as he could afford and support. That's not the case in northern prisoner of war camps. Camp Douglas in Chicago was, uh, I mean, it was 80 acres of hell. This is what they called it, 80 acres of hell. Men were willfully starved. They were willfully mistreated. They were tortured. They were hung by their thumbs. They were forced to what's called uh, ride, uh, ride the rail um, or riding the horse. You would put somebody on a two-by-four with a sharp edge and put concrete buckets on their feet. Uh, this happened, I and mean, that sounds pleasant. Uh, there was a deadline, so men who crossed the quote-unquote deadline were shot. Any black Confederates that showed up were shot. This happened. Uh, but, of course, black Confederates don't exist. Uh, but they were shot. Um, so, I mean, this was, this was documented. And, of course, the, the uh, camp stopped keeping records of the dead bodies at one point. Uh, doctors who went in there said this was horrible. They need to do something about it. And the Union government did nothing. In fact, they cut rations. They removed the ability for these men to get blankets and clothing in the winter in Chicago. Uh, some free people were freezing to death. I mean, this is the treatment of Confederate prisoners of war, and we're supposed to think that the Republican Party and the Union is some type of glorious thing. I mean, it's ridiculous. Uh, but here we have clear evidence. Now, again, if you study the war enough, you know that these Union prisoner of war camps existed and they were horrible. But uh, if you listen to people like Gelzo or some of the others, no, no, no. I mean, this was, these, these Republicans were just good, liberty-loving people. Or Elizabeth Varon, who has a new book coming out about the righteous cause myth. I mean, she, that's not what she calls it, but that's what the book is about, the righteous cause myth. Um, so this is the real problem with the war. It's interpretation. And they would say that, of course, I'm a lost causer. I mean, this is what, oh, well, that guy's just a lost cause myth, mythologist. I mean, this is all he... No, I mean, I'm pointing out the problems of believing somehow that the Union is some uh, righteous utopia. 
and that Lincoln was right about a lot of things. He wasn't. Uh, now, the funniest thing, of course, about Lincoln, one thing, more thing about Lincoln and Reconstruction, the argument is made that Andrew Johnson somehow made Reconstruction worse because he was lenient on Confederates. In fact, at the time, Johnson's Reconstruction plan was viewed as harsher than Lincoln's. So when people run around saying, well, if Lincoln had only survived, Reconstruction would have been... I mean, Gelzo's argument is that Reconstruction would have been harder. I don't think there's any evidence of that. He doesn't live in reality. He lives in a fabrication, uh, I mean, in, in his own mind of what things would have been or should have been. Now, there's another little piece. John, uh, John Marcourt, or Jack, uh, he, as he's called, wrote a piece on Wednesday, Townline CSA. This is a little story about a New York town that seceded from the Union. Uh, they, they did not support the war. Uh, they thought that the war was unjust, and so they seceded. Uh, and there's a, there's, I mean, it's a wonderful little story, uh, but it shows you that the support for the war, and this is something I brought up with Lincoln quite a bit, support for the war was uh, tepid at best in the North. I mean, Lincoln only got 55% of the popular vote in the North in 1864. Uh, 55% in the North. So 45% of the voting population that we know of. Now, we also know as... Um, a, uh, there's, a, there's a wonderful little book about this in the 1864 election by a professor named White. Uh, now, he is not uh, in, in favor. I mean, he, he's, he takes a critical look at the North. Um, but he wrote this little book about how the 1864 election is ripe with voter fraud. Just tremendous voter fraud. And so that 55% might be a little deceiving, that it might have been closer to 50 or less because of voter fraud in 1864. And, uh, I mean, this is, I think he does a very good job documenting this. So Lincoln may not have even had the majority in the North in 1864, in the North. We know that if the South was still voting in 1864, he doesn't win the election. We know that if the Democrats don't split the vote in 1860, Lincoln doesn't win the election. I mean, these are, these are known. So this, this idea that somehow, you know, you have this popular supporter, Lincoln was uh, in any way um, a, a great president. No one thought that in 1860 or 64, uh, except a few rabid partisans in the North. And I mean, this is the myth of Lincoln. You, you ask, a, if you were doing a man on the street interview, you know, how, what percentage of the vote did Abraham Lincoln get in 1860? I think most people would say 80, 90 percent. Lincoln, the greatest president in American history. What are you talking about? That guy's great. Everyone loved Lincoln. Lincoln, Lincoln, Lincoln. But it's just not true. It's just not true. Uh, so you have all these myths about uh, the war and, of course, the righteous North and the, and the horrible South. The South caused all the problems in America. It seems like anything that's wrong with America is blamed on the South. doesn't matter when you're talking about it, but that's the case. So we have all these problems. Um, and then, of course, you know, the, the fact that here you have this little town in New York shows that there wasn't unified support for the Republican Party in, in, in any, any way, shape, or form in the 1860s. Uh, you had a large contingency of Americans who did not want the Republicans in power, did not want Abraham Lincoln in power. Um, but we, we often sweep that aside in this belief that somehow the North was right in everything. And this is problematic long-term, and I think the piece on Monday by Boyd Cathy points this out. What we really have today is you have the South being demonized and being blamed for every problem in America. And, I, and I've, 
You know, whether it's Gelzo with Reconstruction. I mean, look, he basically says the South is a problem with Reconstruction. The war, the South is a problem with the war. The South caused it. Uh, there's a piece in the in the Washington Post that I covered in my own podcast, which uh, um, uh, which comes out came out yesterday, uh, where do um, you have uh, this woman saying that the problem with rhetoric in 2019 is that it's Southern antebellum. I mean, this is we're getting to a point where it's all about uh, the South again. I mean, everything wrong in America is Southern, but as Boyd Cathy points out, everything right in America is actually Southern. Uh, everything that's normal in America is actually Southern. Uh, the argument that somehow this this lady makes where she says, you know, the problem with, with rhetoric today, it's antebellum Southern. And that's, I mean, th- that's not Lincolnian enough. Th- this is antebellum. I mean, Southerners were simply talking about what the founding generation w- was talking about in the period leading up to the American War for Independence. It's the rights, it's the rights of Englishmen. Uh, the ancient constitutions, the Magna Carta, or Magna Charta, however you want to say it. It's uh, it's that more than anything else. Uh, so uh, to, to say that the South is problematic, and what uh, Dr. Kathy gets into in this piece is, of course, religion. And he's saying, you know, the South is the last conservative bulwark against I mean, the, this, this onslaught of rationalism. I mean, this, is, this goes back to the Enlightenment, but it's not really rational. It's irrational. Uh, it's, it's something that's entirely different. And uh, it's not even the assault on religion that took place in the Enlightenment. It's something far worse. At least they, at, at times, some of these enlightened thinkers, now not, not Voltaire or some others, but uh, they were trying to at least come up with some way to uh, keep religion in the mix, at least partly. But not so once you get to, uh, once you get to the modern era. I mean, religion is discarded entirely. And so this is why you have some of the social issues that are so important in America being so viciously debated, because there's no religious anchor any longer. And I think, again, Dr. Kathy does a wonderful job pointing out that the South is really the section that we should be looking to for answers, not to demonize. Uh, And if you are a religious person in the North, if you're a religious person in the South, the Southern tradition Southerners clung, and this is where Barack Obama stands up and says, we know we, we have too many people clinging to their Bibles and guns. Well, uh, is, is there anything wrong with that? I mean, you're protecting two fundamental civil liberties, the right to life through self-defense from whatever it might come, I mean, whatever you need to defend yourself against, and the freedom of religion. And that was a hallmark, even of the enlightened period, freedom of religion was a hallmark of that. Whether you agreed with someone's religion or not, it was important that we didn't kill each other over it. And now, if you are simply a worshiper, a Christian, well, you're persona non grata in many places. Um, I saw a funny uh, video, a guy, had, a Trump supporter, had posted where he walked onto an airplane wearing, of course, Trump attire and carrying Chick-fil-A. But, uh, and I saw a... a, a um, a post, I think it was on social media, some guy had gone around to a Chick-fil-A and put out uh, horrible uh, magazines at the Chick-fil-A to, to in his mind, uh, get back at Chick-fil-A supporters. Uh, I mean, stuff that, you know, kids go to these places, and I wouldn't want to see these things. And he was putting it there where kids could see these things. Uh, and I'm not going to I'm not going to describe what it is because this is a family-friendly podcast. But the fact is, um, this is what people do. It is It is disgusting. Uh, and these people are are dregs, but 
The answer to that is the Southern tradition. This is why we do what we do at the Institute. It's not just about interpretation of the war, reconstruction. Somebody sent me an email the other day saying, why don't you talk about other things? We do all the time. We talk about the 400-year history of the South. We talk about the Southern tradition. We talk about what's valuable in it. We do fun things at times. We do serious topics. But we always talk about this continuity between the Old and the New South that's really there and very important to maintain. And so I think that if we're going to be, uh, be honest, um, then we need to start promoting the Southern tradition as the, as the hub, as the, the, uh, the way to maintain realism in America. Um, only the people in the South, only the Southern tradition, and it's not, if you don't live in the South, I'll say this, the Southern tradition, whether you're in the North or the South, is the anchor. The South was America for a long time. The South still is America. It's the anchor. Uh, California could go its own way and America would be a lot better off. But if the South left, well, then uh, I guess the libs, the, the progressives would say, well, I mean, we're better off, as I've said before, better off without them. But would the South be better off in that particular way? Certainly. I mean, we had a piece, what if the South had its own Congress? How would things go? Uh, but what if just the North could, I mean, it'd be better maybe for California to leave uh, and because the South has always been America. I mean, it's just that the North stole it. It's just like during the, during the Constitution period uh, when the Constitution was being written and then ratified, the term Federalist was stolen by the Nationalists. The real Federalists were people that were saying we need to have a federal republic where the states have powers, where we have a union of states. That's real federalism. But that's not, of course what the Federalists, quote-unquote Federalists, wanted. They were nationalists. So all these words, semantics, these things matter. And uh, it matters how we interpret history. Uh, it matters that Gelzo is wrong. But uh, the only thing we can do is try to do what we're doing here, have this podcast, have our website, and keep supporting the Institute. We're going to keep trying to give you content that tells the other side of the story. And until next time, good day. Good day.